For Arizona Public Media, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, a visit to the St. Mary's Food Bank Distribution Center in Phoenix, where every 90 seconds now, approximately eight families are receiving food assistance. And a new Spotlight session features the passionate and fast-paced acoustic swing of the guitar duo, the Django Shredders. Those stories are coming up next on Arizona Spotlight. Food banks are among the essential services that must stay open during the COVID-19 pandemic. With unemployment insurance claims rising to historic levels, the demand for food assistance is also increasing. That's coincided with a drop-off, though, in the numbers of volunteers who are offering to pack emergency boxes and distribute food. In this story, produced by Elisa Ivanitskaya, we'll hear Jerry Brown, the Director of Media Relations at St. Mary's Food Bank Alliance, discuss how prioritizing the safety of customers and volunteers has actually helped St. Mary's Food Bank in Phoenix to adapt and become more efficient. At our main distribution centers in Phoenix and Surprise, we have changed to a drive-through model. So we're serving eight cars every 90 seconds and no one can leave their cars. They give us their information through the window. We pop the trunk and put the food in the trunk so there's no contact whatsoever. And that is a much quicker model and a much safer model. So because we're able to serve about the same families in five hours that we used to do in seven, we cut our hours back from 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. to 8.30 to 1.30. We're serving about the same amount of families, but it gives us two hours in the afternoon to help us build emergency food boxes and stock up for the next day. What was happening was we were working all day distributing food, and we didn't have enough time to turn around and get ready for the next day because we're still seeing more than 1,000 families a day. It ranges from 1,000 to 1,500, depending on the day. Before the pandemic, between 250 and 300 people were volunteering to pack food boxes every day. Brown says that number has now plummeted to about 20 beginning in March. We had to come up with an entirely different way of packing the food, social distance six feet apart. In the meantime, we have had the Arizona National Guard. The governor has sent us between 50 and 70 National Guard troops to help us build food boxes, to help us distribute those food boxes to the families that come through the drive-thru. And slowly but surely, the amount of volunteers has increased as people have been informed that we are practicing social distancing. We're getting more volunteers. We're trying to cap it at about 50 per session so that we can keep social distancing and build two lines of food boxes. In addition to social distancing, volunteers and National Guards also wear masks and gloves. There are eight lines that are being served at one time, and they're all distant apart. It's one person is at the front of the car taking the information down from the client where they live, and one volunteer is in the back of the car loading the car. And we're asking folks to please clean out the trunks before they come, because we don't want to be in a situation where we're putting food in the back seat. For people without a car, there is a separate walk-in entrance. Food assistance is free, but clients need to show proof of their Arizona address, for example, on their driver's license. The reason why we want to monitor that is because the emergency food box, the one box that has the cans in it that's 
part of the emergency food box government program, you can only receive one of those a month. We're already distributing 60,000 of those a month, and that is one family once a month. If families were receiving more than one of those food boxes a month, then we, we wouldn't have enough. But in addition to that food box, they're still receiving all of the food that we're getting from other sources, milk, eggs, ice cream, fresh fruits and vegetables, meats. And if a family needs to come back a second time within the month, they're able to do that. On average, Brown says a food bank client receives between 30 and 40 pounds of groceries. Before the pandemic, a significant portion of the distributed food was donated by stores. We receive about 20% of our food from grocery stores. Food rescue is what we call it. And that food has almost disappeared. And we also lost a lot of individual food drives where offices, businesses, Boy Scout troops, whoever, does a food drive for us to collect food. But there are a lot of restaurant distributors, a lot of people who make large deliveries to restaurants that cannot handle it right now. We're seeing a lot of donations from those folks that is helping to make up for some of the food we're losing from other sources. But Brown says financial donations have not decreased during the pandemic. Anecdotally, um, just in the last week, we've seen a lot of donations for exactly $1,200 and $2,400, which we can only guess is people who are receiving their checks, their stimulus checks, and deciding that there are people who need it more than they do, which is an amazing emotional thing whenever you see that. We've had dozens and dozens and dozens of $1,200 checks. In addition to distribution centers, St. Mary's Food Bank delivers food to the communities by truck. On April 14th, the mobile pantry provided a record number of groceries for Navajo Nation families in Tuba City. We had 90,000 pounds of food up there, and it was given away to 2,000 families in less than two hours. Brown says St. Mary's Food Bank will continue to support the most affected communities statewide, including hourly workers and students at the community colleges. To get help or to volunteer, visit firstfoodbank.org. This story was produced by Elisa Ivanitskaya. Next week, tune in for the final episode of the series to learn more about local efforts to feed schoolchildren during the pandemic. More than 80 years later, the swinging and buoyant acoustic jazz pioneered by Django Reinhardt and the Quintet of the Hot Club of France is still providing a blueprint for musicians all over the world. It's a music that's full of passion and fire, and playing it well requires a level of technical precision that few can achieve. Guitarists Alex Chavarelli and Rudy Marquez met while they were studying music in San Diego, which they still consider their home base. Although they continue to pursue other styles of music, when they play together as a duo, they generate magic as the Django Shredders. You'll hear it next in this Spotlight Session.
what's the secret of the magic of hot club gypsy jazz, do you think? Why is this the kind of music that speaks to you? It's a certain kind of flavor, I think, that appeals to a lot of different people. Um, you know, it, it's got so many different shades, yet at the same time, it there's some sort of old European vibe to it that, at least for me, I, I really enjoy. And for you, Rudy? We both are jazz musicians that play regular straight-ahead jazz, American traditional jazz. And we were attracted to this music. It's very accessible in a duo setting because we can basically, one can comp for one another. Uh, the, the style leads for a, this to work a little bit more than straight-ahead jazz, I think. And it's more interesting for the listener because a lot of people don't really know about this music. Whenever we get out and we play it, they're like, what is that sound? And so, we, you know, that's when we started this program that we do. So I just watched a rock documentary about Black Sabbath, and the lead guitar player is uh, Tommy, is it Iomi? And he worked in a sawmill, and he lost the tips of, I think, three of his fingers. And this happened when he was, the band was starting out at the time. And he was incredibly depressed because he thought that he might not play guitar again. And he tells this story that's almost too good to be true about how his foreman from the sawmill came and visited him while he was recuperating and he brought him some records. They were Django. And he said, yeah, why don't you check this guy out, you know? Yeah. And, and Tommy said, the last thing I wanted to do was listen to another guitar player at that point in time. And finally, he got bored or whatever and put him on. And he was like, oh, wow, that's good stuff, you know? <laughs> so it really, really got him fired up again about playing music. And it wasn't until after he talked to the foreman again, where he, and he told him how much he liked it, that the mm -hmm. guy said, "Yeah, did you know Django only used three fingers on his hand?" Yeah. And you know, he went back and looked at the back of the vinyl and was like, "Holy moly!" You know, he saw his hand and realized what had happened. I, I would like for each of you guys to tell me a little bit about what kind of an inspiration Django is for you, and okay. what you what you think you've learned from listening to him that you don't get from listening to guitar player B. Well, I mean, Django, I mean, what you just described, that handicap that he overcame in itself, that's a huge inspiration, mm -hmm. not only to overcome that kind of handicap and yet create something that's so technically superb, but also musically has its own voice. And actually, it's interesting how that handicap influenced Django's music, because a lot of sort of the idioms of gypsy jazz, such as the chords that you use or the lines that you play, they're all because Django could only use a couple fingers. And so that, that handicap actually changed, I'm sure changed the sound of the music he was playing. You know, you got a lot of uh, six and minor six chords and different sort of sounds that he, I don't reckon he would play with if he had all his fingers. But other than that, I mean, just the, for me, at least the style that he started is just something that I've always really enjoyed. Uh, Gypsy Jazz and his compositions, I think um, you can't forget the fact that he's also an amazing composer on top of being an amazing guitarist. And it's hard to do both, have something that appeals to people regardless of whether you know they're into virtuoso playing or not. But anyways, yeah, that's sort of what <laughs> I like about it. And Rudy, what about for you? I got into Gypsy Jazz around the time I was... Um transferring to my college at San Diego State. I came from classical music and my gateway into jazz music was gypsy jazz. I think uh, the big thing that I really took from Django, creativeness, especially when he would play with Stefan Crepelli. It, it, it seemed like they, those two were just, you know, a match made in heaven in a way. You know, they, they both fed off each other. There's a, there's a story I remember reading um, about Stefan and um, Django's relationship 
Django was not really the most reliable person when it came to being on time to things. And Stefan was like the opposite of that. He was always there waiting for Django. And uh, I remember there was one um, documented uh, incident of this when Stefan showed up to a concert and Django was out gambling and he just didn't show up. And no one was mad that Django didn't show up. And he just, he rescheduled the uh, concert for another day and no one cared because he's that famous over there. It's, it's amazing. Yeah, they had a ton of charisma and they were very much rock stars of their day. They really were, yeah. Yeah. At a time when Europe was going through so much uh, political, cultural stress, and war was breaking out, uh, fascism was on the rise, and these guys were just traveling into dangerous areas, performing when and where they wanted on their own rules. It's pretty amazing when you think about that. I mean, people mm-hmm. complain today about, oh, I can't get a gig in New York. You know, yeah. Django would show up and make a gig. Yeah, during German uh, occupancy in France, actually, um, I think uh, Stefan was in England, I believe, and he didn't want to come back to France. Um, Django was trying to escape, you know, France, and he, every time he got to the border, they kept sending him back. And Django actually got a lot of work while the war was going on, actually. This is when he was composing Nuage, you know, one of the most best-known Django pieces well, that would make a pretty smooth segue into hearing Nuage. Is that a tune that you guys play? Yeah, sure. Yeah, we'd love to.
to our listeners, it's going to be totally seamless about who's playing lead in any given time. But mm-hmm. I wonder if you guys, when you're doing your arrangements, uh, how do you divvy up the parts? How do you decide who starts and who takes what solo where? And also, if you feel like there's certain territory that you prefer to play, is one of you a little more into ballads, perhaps? You, mm-hmm. you tell me. Well. I love playing with Alex. He's probably the most proficient um, technical player I've ever played with. So he, for the most part, in terms of like anytime we need something like to just be energetic in a way, I just can rely on him to do something like for that. Um, for the rhythm playing, I feel like uh, I think I like to do that a lot, too. I think I enjoy playing rhythm uh, in this duo a little bit more than playing lead, so to speak. And what are what are your thoughts on arranging, Alex? I think Rudy, uh, I think he's a better rhythm player than me. At the same time, though, when we're arranging stuff, we like to treat each other as equals in terms of giving each other the same amount of work. It's more or less about knowing each other's strengths because at the end of the day, we're one instrument, I like to think. From an arranger's point of view, it's like you, you know what the player's capable of so it's like okay I'll know this will work because I know he can do this that's probably the best way I could put it I'd love to hear some more sure and I asked Rudy to pick one last time so Alex tell us what you'd like to play and and why why don't we just do a a twofer this next one is kind of a it's a medley actually and these are two songs by Django that we really like that just sort of go well together this is Belleville and Daphne
The Swinging Rhythm of Rudy Marquez and Alex Chavarelli, performed in the ACPM Radio Studio, recorded and mixed by Jim Blackwood. The Django Shredders visited our studio last December when they were on their way to play two shows in Green Valley. You can listen to this session again and see some video we shot of the Django Shredders in action on the Arizona Spotlight page at azpm.org. Thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. This show originates from the AZPM radio studios. AZPM's interim news director is Duncan Moon. The music is by Calexico. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. Production assistance from Elisa Ivanitskaya. I'm producer and host, Mark McLemore. Arizona Public Media's original programming is made possible in part by the Community Service Grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.